0: Please remain standing for our epistle lesson and also our sermon text from Philippians chapter 3, the first three verses. Again, give your ear to God's holy word. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Thus far as the reading of God's Word, this is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for Your Spirit. We pray that as we consider Your Word today, You would, by Your Spirit, make us more like Your Son, Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Who truly are God's people, and how can you tell? Who are the true people of God, and how do you know? What distinguishes them from those who do not belong to God? These are essential questions. These are fundamental questions. What does it mean to belong to God? What does it mean to belong to His people? These are the questions that are at the heart of our passage today. They're the questions that Paul seeks to answer as he turns in the second half of this letter to the Philippians and to address the dangers and the problems that the Philippian church, church was facing directly. What does it mean to belong to God? Now, Paul, Paul phrases this a little differently. He, put, he says that we are the circumcision. In Paul's day, they might ask, who are the circumcision? This word that he uses in our verses today denote what he says are the true people of God. And circumcision, of course, makes us think of Genesis 17, where God made a covenant with Abraham and gave him the sign of circumcision for himself and for his children. Among other things, circumcision pointed to righteousness by faith, to regeneration, and importantly, to belonging, to being God's people. Meant to, at that point to descend physically from Abraham or to enter into covenant with God and join that people by being circumcised. So this is what Paul's getting at when he says we are the true circumcision. But it's not just the word circumcision that needs some explaining in this passage. This passage contains some of the most striking and intense language in all of Paul's epistles. He tells us to beware, to look out, at least three times. He uses words like dogs and evil workers and mutilation. Why, why such the intense language? Why these terms? Well, there was another group, in addition to Paul and the other apostles and those who preached Christ, who also claimed to be the circumcision, who claimed to be the true people of God. Some of you already know that he's writing to the Philippian church and warning them about the Judaizers, a group whose doctrine... And teachings were dangerous because it struck at the most essential meaning of what it meant to be God's people. It struck at the essential meaning of what it really means to be saved. And so to understand what Paul is getting at here in chapter 3, I think it would be good if we spent a little time looking at the background of what he is dealing with. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn it to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 the Jerusalem Council, and it gives us a great summary of the doctrine of the um, heresy, really, that Paul is combating here in Philippians chapter 3. So Acts 15, beginning in verse 1, says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. In verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this is the summary. This is a summary of their doctrine, that in order to be saved, one needed, it was necessary to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Notice the insistence they placed on the necessity of circumcision and law-keeping for righteousness, unless they say, you are circumcised. You cannot be saved. And further, see, they say it is necessary that the Gentiles keep the law of Moses, the rituals and the traditions of Israel's covenant. Necessary for what, we might ask? For salvation, the Judaizers said. So this was, this was the matter that the apostles and elders came together in Acts 15 to discuss in Jerusalem In in verse 6, they continue, The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts, by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So as the apostles and the elders and the church in Jerusalem got together to discuss this matter, Peter here recounts, His visit to Cornelius' house, who was a Roman, a Gentile centurion, and how he and his household were converted to Christ. And Paul makes the point that God had cleansed the heart of the Gentiles by faith in Christ. Circumcision, in other words, was not necessary to cleanse the heart and make one ready to receive the indwelling of the Spirit, the great promise of the new covenant. Faith in Christ does that. Surely, Peter says, then we are all, Jew and Gentile alike, saved by grace through faith. Look again at verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. This is then what made the Judaizing doctrine so bad. Their insistent on circumcision and keeping the law of Moses failed to reckon with the great changes that were brought about by the coming of the Messiah, God was fulfilling all of the types and the shadows and the promises that he had made in the Old Covenant. The signs and symbols, in other words, that they advocated were passing away. Worse yet, they promoted a kind of formalism, seeking to please God with outward rituals. And worse than that, their reliance on law-keeping as a means of being accounted righteous was a denial of the gospel of God's grace in Christ. This was the group that followed Paul around as he preached Christ and planted churches, telling the new Gentile believers, yes, it's good that you've heard about the Messiah. Yes, it's good to put your faith in Christ, but we are the true circumcision. We will teach you about what it means to know God. You have to come to God with, this, uh, with the covenant through Moses, through circumcision. You need to keep these rituals. You need to keep these laws in order to be accounted righteous. So it's a dangerous heresy in the first century, but these ideas and these doctrines are always new. We can always be tempted to think that formalism, that the mere enacting of rituals will make us right with God. We can all be tempted to think that we need to add something to the righteousness of Christ in order to be accepted by God. This dangerous threat is lurking in the background when Paul writes to the Philippian church. Interestingly enough, we get the record of the Philippian church being planted in Acts 16, just after Acts 15 in the Jerusalem council. And so this is what's lurking in the background here as Paul begins in chapter 3 when he writes to the Philippians saying, again, look with me in 3 verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Finally, he says, or, or perhaps better translated, as for what remains, for all of that you are dealing with now in Philippi, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Joy, it has been said, is the atmosphere. Of the book of Philippians. Isn't it amazing to think that as Paul turns to deal with the great pressures of false doctrine pressing on the Philippian church, and then in chapter 4 we're going to see him deal with conflict within the church, as he turns directly to deal with their problems and their grave spiritual dangers, he warns them about what it means to truly belong to God. He puts it all under the heading of joy. Rejoice, he says. In the Lord, Rejoicing in the Lord means at its core rejoicing in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done, being deeply satisfied with Christ and working out from there. Rejoicing in the Lord means being minded of Christ and his things, to care about his people, to care about his glory, to care about his mission, his kingdom in the world. Let these things, Paul says, bring you Joy. Let your joy be in the Lord. Joy is is an emotion of gladness. It is an emotion. But we ought not confuse this joy in the Lord with mere upbeat feelings. Genuine Christian joy is not the power of positive thinking, it's not having a bubbly or an optimistic personality. It's not being happy because all of the events in life are going your way. Paul rejoiced all throughout the letter of Philippians, and Paul is in jail after spending time um, being locked up in Jerusalem and having a shipwreck and being chained to a guard. And Paul rejoices instead of being tied to circumstance. Rejoice in Christ as a deep gladness. In the person and work of Christ. And if your joy is in the Lord, truly in the Lord and his things, then your joy can coexist with all kinds of hard providences. Even things like conflict within the church and conflict from false teaching. Amazingly, the two places in the book of Philippians where Paul exhorts us directly to rejoice in the Lord are in chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 3, he's dealing with personal conflict with false brethren teaching heresy. In chapter 4, he's dealing with conflict between members of the church in Philippi. And this is the context that Paul tells us, rejoice, have joy in the things of Christ, have joy in the person and work of Christ. But it's not just interpersonal conflict. Our joy in the Lord can be in all kinds of difficult providences loss of a job or diagnosis of a serious illness problems with our family if our joy is in the Lord then it can abound and work even in difficult times And so a key sign of spiritual danger then is losing your Christian joy So don't skimp past what Paul says at the end of verse 1 there. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. He says it is safe. Paul reminds them to rejoice because when you find great satisfaction in Christ, you are far less tempted to see the kind of formalism or legalism promoted by the Judaizers or any modern equivalents As satisfying. You will have great joy already in what Jesus, who Jesus is, and what he has done for you. So I want to exhort you all today make a point to be satisfied in Christ. Make it a point that you rejoice in the Lord so that you will find safety and strength. We all need to be more like George Mueller. We've referenced him before, not too long ago, but George Mueller. If you don't know, he was a, an evangelist and an orphanage director in Bristol, England. And he's famous for having a tremendous life of faith and a vibrant prayer life and an amazingly effective ministry. In his lifetime, he cared for more than 10,000 orphans. This is what George Mueller said about seeking joy in the Lord. He says, quote, I saw more clearly than ever that the first and great Primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how the inner life might be nourished by God. End quote. We need to ask ourselves do we take pleasure in Christ? Do we take pr- pleasure in who He is? the eternal Son of God, taking on flesh to come and die on a cross in our place and rise from the dead? Do we take pleasure in being united to Christ? Is our mind filled with the things of Christ, the good of His church, the expansion of His kingdom here on earth? These are the things that we ought to think about constantly. These are the things that we ought to make our soul, like George Mueller says, happy in the Lord. So, Paul continues, saying, For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. This rejoicing in the Lord and knowing who Jesus is is the most basic tenet of our faith. And when he's warning against the most fundamental of errors, Paul never tired of telling the church over and over again the basic gospel truths. He knew how prone we are to forget The basics. He knew, as Sinclair Ferguson says in his commentary on the book of Philippians, we are rarely as mature as we think and are never beyond needing the truth of Scripture explained to us again. So often we are instead like the men in Athens that Paul encountered, who, it says, gathered together constantly to either tell or hear some new thing. We are addicted to novelty. As a people, but the Christian faith is both at once simple and profound. It is simple and profound. Its basic tenets can be confessed, memorized, and known by the youngest of children, and in a a matter of a few minutes. And it can be pondered on for ages and millennia. Who Christ is, what He has done, and who you are in Christ. These are the things that I pray that we hear, that we think about over and over again, because as Paul says here, this is safety. The repetition of basic spiritual truths are essential for the safety of any congregation. They're essential for the safety of you individually. They're, the, they're essential for the safety, spiritual safety of your children and of us as a people. We need to be rehearsing these things to ourselves constantly. So, having given the positive antidote to the Judaizing heresy, Paul warns them again about the Judaizers, describing them in language that achieves an intense irony, calling them dogs, evil workers in the mutilation. Look at two. He says, Beware, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. This is some of Paul's most striking language. Why does he pick these words? Well, for the Jews and many surrounding people, the term "dog" was an offensive one. Even in our own culture, even in our own culture today, we still have some of this stigma. We keep, we keep dogs as pets. they're man's best friend. That was not the case in, in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they were, they were scavengers. they were unclean. But even today, calling someone a dog has a, has a major stigma attached to it. But for the Jews, it was also a religious term. The, the Gentiles, those who were outside of God's covenant, were called the dogs. People who simply by their birth were ritually unclean. And so by calling his opponents dogs, Paul is taking this term that applied to those who were outside of the covenant, um, and he is applying it to the Judaizers and saying they ironically are the ones who are not God's people. Next he calls them evil workers, which is not a term that just simply means sinners, someone who does something wrong, but we we should think of this like he constantly talks about people like Epaphroditus, his fellow worker. The Judaizers he says are evil workers. They are ministers, they are evangelists. They are zealously promoting religion, but what they promote is wicked. And finally, in a climactic way, he calls them the mutilation. The mutilation. They are not the circumcision, they are the mutilation. And commenting on this passage, the scholar Moises Silva says, Paul's reference to mutilation may be, among other things, an allusion to barbaric pagan customs. Here in Philippians, Paul takes the Judaizers' greatest source of pride and interprets it as the surest sign They have no share among God's people. It's strong language. It's intense language. This is the great reversal. He's saying those who refuse to acknowledge Christ in his kingdom are not God's people. Beware, Paul says, of this teaching. And we might find it difficult perhaps to come to grips with such strong language at that I don't believe is scurrilous or insulting, but it, it can't even seem that way. But Paul wants us to keep our eyes open to the tragic consequences of false teaching, like what the Judaizers were promoting. False teaching, which takes the most basic and essential components of what it means to belong to God, what it means to come to God, and twisting those things. Teaching like that spreads like gangrene, and it destroys faith. Teaching like that will send someone to hell. And this is not only a first century problem. We are all tempted to a mere formalism. We are all tempted to believe that we can seek to please God or draw near to God by the mere outward observance of rituals. We are all tempted to place the boundaries of what it means to belong to God in the wrong way. Place. At a fundamental level, we are all tempted to believe that we have something to add to the righteousness of Christ. Instead, Paul tells us what the markers of a true, of the true people who belong to God, the true circumcision. Look with me in verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision, he says. You don't need to be circumcised, Philippians, because in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the long-awaited promise that was given in the Old Testament of a truly circumcised heart was fulfilled. We read it earlier in Deuteronomy Chapter 30, verse 6, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. You see, the practice of circumcision in all of those years looked forward to the putting off of the sin nature and of a new redeemed humanity. This is what happened in the cross and in the tomb and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Colossian Colossian Christian saying, In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The circumcision of Christ. This was done without hands. In other words, it was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. This putting off of the body of the flesh, putting off the old man, putting off our sin, and it was accomplished without hands, That is, it was done by God himself. Paul tells them, look to faith in Christ. You have the fulfillment of the promise of circumcision in the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus died, your old self, your old sin nature died with him. When Jesus was buried, you put off the old man. When Jesus was raised from the dead, you were given a new heart, a circumcised heart, to love the Lord your God. Believe that Jesus is your righteousness, Paul is telling them. It was an act of God. This is the same for us. The mere observance of rituals does not make us right with God, but faith in Christ and obeying God from the heart. This is what he means by being the true people of God. We are, he says, the circumcision. And then he marks out the markings of this people. Continue with me in verse 3. He says, We are the circumcision who, one, worship God in the Spirit. To say that we worship God in the Spirit means, among other things, that our worship needs to originate in our hearts. It must be Sincere, in other words. Motivated by love of God and gratitude for all He is and all that He has done. Worship, in other words, cannot be mechanical or formulaic. Now, that doesn't rule out certain rituals or liturgy, but it does demand that all of our physical postures or symbolic actions must be infused with a heartfelt commitment with faith and love and zeal. This is always a danger in a church like ours who has a, a high biblical theology for worship is to, to go through the motions, to do things by rote, to do things in a merely formal way and not engage our hearts and our minds in belief and faith in Christ. Those are not the sacrifices that please God. And in addition to having a heart that is filled with the Spirit and that loves God truly, worshiping by the Spirit is also probably a reference to the great change that Jesus told the woman at the well about in John chapter 4. You remember in John chapter 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He's saying that the internationalization, if you will, of the God's people which began on the day of Pentecost means that we don't have to come to a certain place any longer in order to meet with God. What is most important now is worshiping God through Christ, that is in the truth. And ultimately what he means is that Christ is the way of access to the Father. We approach God in worship through Jesus from anywhere on this planet because we worship by the work That is, in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Paul says that God's people rejoice in Christ Jesus. God's people worship by the Spirit, and God's people rejoice in Christ Jesus. This word he uses, rejoice, is not actually the same word as the one we had in verse number one. This, This word, rejoice, here means to boast or to glory in. As it's sometimes translated in other verses. God's true people are those who set their hope and their life and all of their desire for righteousness and their joy in Christ. The true people of God, their faith is like the faith described in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says that faith is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. As he is offered to us in the gospel. For God's people, all of our confidence is resting in Christ, rejoicing in Christ. Christ is everything to us. As Paul says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That it is written, He who glories, or he who boasts, he who rejoices, let him glory in the Lord. Finally, Paul says that God's people put no confidence in the flesh. They realize that they can do nothing to save themselves and that Christ has done everything for us. To add circumcision or any other right or any other works to the work of Christ is effectively to destroy the work of Christ because it denies God's grace to save us. The Heidelberg Catechism speaks about those who have confidence in the flesh, saying this quote, Though they boast of Christ in their words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only deliverer and savior. For one of these two things must be true either that Jesus is not a complete savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this savior must find all things in him necessary for their salvation. End quote. The true people of God worship God by the Spirit. They rejoice in Christ Jesus. They put no confidence in their own works. These are the most fundamental markers of what it means to belong to God's people. We may agree and we may disagree with other Christians about very important issues related to the faith. But we begin, begin to make a grave mistake when we take what it means to belong to Christ and add to it. If we, if we begin to do that, we've moved into various, very dangerous territory, Paul would say. Beware. Look out. Do not seek to add anything to Christ Jesus. So where does, that, where does this leave us? What is the result of boasting in Christ and worshiping by the Spirit and putting no confidence In the flesh, rejoicing in the Lord. Verse number 1, again. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Everything comes under this category. Joy is the result of looking to Christ alone. Joy that is like Paul's. Joy that is unhindered by circumstances. Joy that is indomitable. A deep gladness in Christ. It is a joy that looks forward, that that rejoices in Christ now, and looks forward to the glory to be revealed, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Father, we thank you again for your word and its work by your spirit in our life. We pray that as we meditate on it this week, that you would fill our hearts with joy for who you are and all that you have done for us in Christ, that we may see him and be like him. In Jesus' name, amen.